Welcome to the Caledonia Baptist Church Sermons Podcast. Caledonia Baptist Church is a small biblical church located in Caledonia, Mississippi. We believe in expository preaching, so join us for this sermon as we go verse by verse and see what the scripture has to say to us. Take your Bible and find John 13, the Gospel according to John chapter 13. How many of you remember the name Benedict Arnold? Some do. Doing a little research on him this week. Um, For those of you who may not know, uh, Benedict Arnold was a major general in the Revolutionary War and was a very successful general uh, for a while. Um, So much so that George Washington put him in charge of West Point in New York. But, as many of you probably know, he decided to become a traitor and was about to let the British Army capture West Point, but the plot was found out, and through a whole, a lot of circumstances we won't go into, um, he was able to escape and he fleed over to Britain. Well, we know Benedict Arnold as the first, I guess the first, and maybe the greatest traitor in American history, so much so that his name has become an idiom, an idiom, which, which is, people might say he is a Benedict Arnold to say he is a traitor. But in today's text, we're going to talk about someone who I would say is an even worse traitor than Benedict Arnold. This is someone whose name is also synonymous for uh, a grievous act of betrayal, even greater than that of someone betraying their own country. And so in John 13, if you remember last week, we, we focused on Jesus washing the feet of his disciples and the service of Christ, the servanthood of Christ. But even in that, even in last week's text, Jesus gave us a hint of what we would cover today. Find John 13 verse 11. And this is from last week, but it says, for he knew who should betray him Therefore he said, you're not all clean. And so even last week, in the first part of John 13, Jesus is giving this hint, and we know he's speaking about Judas. John even tells us that. And today we dig more into this man, Judas Iscariot, and his act of betrayal. So we're going to do that in verses 18 through 30. If you found John 13, verse 18, let me know by saying word. It says this, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come that when it come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, 
doubting of whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spoke. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spoke unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that is the money bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop or the bread, went immediately out, and it was night. I'm going to give you six truths from this passage, six truths from the story, and then one, I hope, a very practical application at the end. Let's dig in. The first truth is this. Jesus Christ has perfect knowledge of all people. Jesus has perfect knowledge of all people. Look at the first part of verse 18. Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you, for I know whom I have chosen. And so imagine we're at the Last Supper. Jesus is in this room with his disciples, and he's giving this teaching, and he washed their feet. He's teaching on servanthood. But then he says, I'm not speaking about you being clean to all of you. But back to verse 11, all of you are not clean. And he says, I know whom I have chosen. Now here's a question. Was Judas chosen to be a disciple of Christ? Yes, right? Not a trick question. Yes. Multiple passages in the scriptures tell us that Jesus sat on a mountain and looked out among the disciples and picked 12. And Judas Iscariot was one of those 12. Look back in John 6. Jump back. Hold your place in John 13. Flip back to John 6. Find verse 70. In John 6, John 6, 70 says, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And it says in verse 71, John tells us, He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. So did Jesus call out Judas to be a disciple? Yes. Another question, was Judas called or chosen to be a true believer in Jesus Christ? And the answer is no. Though he was called to be a disciple, to play his part, to fulfill scripture, he was not called to be a follower or a believer of Christ. And so Jesus here makes a distinction as he shows his perfect knowledge of all people by saying, I'm not speaking to you all. And so we can take this and, and look at this and, and kind of find how this speaks to other doctrine in Scripture, particularly that doctrine of unconditional election. When Jesus says here, I've marked you 11, you've been marked before the foundation of the world to become a Christian. And again, this is the teaching of all uh, Scripture of, and the whole of Scripture that God set his sight on us even before he created us. 
which is an amazing thought. Knowing we would sin, knowing we would reject him, he still set his sights on us, his affection on us, his love on us, his desire for us before the foundation of the world. Let me give you a few passages. If this is maybe new to you or you, you, don't, you don't believe me, in Revelation 13, 8, it's talking about all the people who worship the beast. And listen to what it says. All who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. And so what that verse says, and, and that's also repeated in Revelation 17, what that verse says is there, there are people there who will not worship the beast. And they are Christians. Why will they not? Why are they Christians? It says their name was written down before the foundation of the world. Let me give you another passage, Ephesians 1.4. Ephesians 1.4, Paul writes, Even as he, God, chose us, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Let me give you another text in Romans 8, 29 and 30. It says, Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. If God predestined someone, then he will call them. If he calls them, he will justify them. And if he justified them, he will one day glorify them. It's called the golden chain of redemption. And it tells us that salvation is not dependent on us. But all along, it's been dependent on him. So Jesus, again, makes this statement here. I know whom I've chosen. Yeah, Judas was called to be a follower for a time, to fulfill a purpose, but he was not chosen to be a believer. Let me clarify this for us. If you're a Christian today in this place, you're a Christian because God chose you to be a Christian. Then he created you. Then he sent Jesus to die for you. Then, and this should blow your mind, he allowed you to live in a place where you could hear the gospel. Did you know there are millions and millions and millions of people who live in a place where there is no gospel because there's no missionary or no preacher or no copy of the Bible? Why were we not born in a place like that? Grace, I guess, right? Not because we deserve it, but grace. God created you. He sent Christ to die for you. He allowed you to grow up in a place where you could hear the gospel so that none of us have an excuse, right? We all have heard it many, many times. And then not only does God allow you to hear the gospel, he goes further. He, he gives you a spiritual heart. He takes out your heart of stone. He gives you a heart of flesh, allowing you to repent and believe. And being made alive spiritually, you repented and you believed and you were saved. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. So church, we're going to glory in our Redeemer who deserves all the praise, all the credit for our salvation. And Jesus says, he shows us his perfect knowledge of all people and shows us about his election. Number two, the second truth I want you to see is that the scripture must be fulfilled. Is there any prophecy in the Old Testament that won't one day be fulfilled or haven't already been fulfilled? Whatever God says will come to pass. Someone once described the Old and New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament was promises made and the New Testament promises kept. I like that. Promises made, promises kept. And so what do I mean by this? The second part of verse 18, Jesus says, But that the scripture will be fulfilled, that he who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now, uh, we read Psalm 41 earlier, and that's what Jesus quotes here. He quotes Psalm 41, this Psalm of David, where, I don't know if you were listening closely earlier, but in, David had enemies, right? 
We know this. And I was reading in Psalm 41 this week, and he makes this prayer in Psalm 41, and he says, Lord, uh, you know, my enemies speak maliciously about me, and they say, when will he die and be forgotten? I mean, David's enemies were mean. <laughs> David's enemies said, we wish he would die and be forgotten altogether. That's pretty mean. I mean, I've had some people say some mean stuff to me, but I don't think I've ever heard anybody say, I hope you die and that you're forgotten about forever. People may have thought it, nobody said it, but... But then he says this, when my, when my enemy comes to me, they speak deceitfully. They store up evil in their heart, and then they go out and talk about me. He says, all who hate me, they whisper about me. They make plans to hurt me. But in verse 9 of Psalm 41, David says this, Even my friend whom I trusted, the one who ate my bread, his hill has been raised against me. What's that phrase mean, to raise a hill against? What do you think about when you think about a hill being raised against you? I pictured a horse just kicking someone as hard as it can. It's this idea of being kicked. And David reminds us that not only do enemies betray us, but even friends can betray us, right? David was betrayed by his very own son, right? Absalom, he was betrayed David was betrayed by so many, so many different people. And, and I look at that and think, well, in the life of David, I'm sure he's thinking, it's understandable to be betrayed by my enemies or be hurt by my enemies, but how much more does it hurt to be, to be hurt by someone close to you? Doesn't that hurt the worst? Doesn't that sting the most? When someone close to you, you expect it from an enemy, not from someone close to you. So Jesus, in John 13, 18, quotes Psalm 41, 9, in reference to Judas Iscariot, when he says, the one who eats the bread. And I remember I read the passage to you. Jesus took the bread and gave it to Judas. And that's a sign of closeness, right? It's, it's a sign of closeness to eat together. When we eat in our over here on Sundays, we call it something. Usually we call it a fellowship meal. It's about closeness. You eat with your family. We have holidays coming up soon. Hopefully most of us will get together with family and eat. There's something about eating that's close. And it was so in Jesus' culture. And so it's especially worse to be, especially bad to be betrayed by someone with whom you broke bread. And Jesus says the scripture must be fulfilled. Number three, I want you to notice in verse 19 that Jesus cares deeply about the faith of his people. And so in verse 19 he says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when I am betrayed, I'm paraphrasing here, but when I am betrayed, you disciples will believe that I am the one I say I am. And so Jesus cares deeply about the faith of his people. And so here's what I mean by that. If you were Jesus in this room at this supper with these men, and you knew for a fact that one of these guys was about to betray you, how would you handle it? How would I handle it? We might be throwing over tables or, you know, starting a fight. We might vent Call the person out. Just, hey, it's this guy. He's the worst. Get him, you know. Jesus didn't do that. Not in that way. He didn't vent. Listen, Jesus did not do what we do sometimes when we get frustrated or we disagree with something. Jesus did not storm out. He did not slam a door. He did not throw a temper tantrum. He said, I'm telling you these things. Because later on, you're going to think back, you're going to look back, and you're going to believe that I am He. 
And Jesus is here hours from betrayal and a day from death and suffering. And yet he still cares more about the faith of his people than his very own trials and tribulations. We serve a God, church, who cares about our faith. I mean, he gives us our faith. He strengthens our faith. And he continually brings good from any evil that comes our way. Every time. He works all things together for good. For those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Jesus cares deeply about the faith of his people. Let's look to the next thing, verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one whom I sent. I'll give you this quickly here, but number four is this. Believers can obey Jesus with confidence. It's like he's saying to the disciples, look, you're going to go out and serve me and follow my commands. And as you go out, just know all those who receive you, they're receiving me. And as they receive me, they're receiving God the Father. An illustration I have for this, um, some of you are teachers. Some of you have kids in school. Some of you used to be in school years ago. Um, sometimes at school, I can see a student walking down the hallway. And you can ask the student, hey, where are you going? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm going, uh, well, let me see your hall pass. You remember hall passes? Let me see your hall pass. I, I, I don't, I, and so they're going nowhere. They have no hall pass. You know, you need to go to the office or go back to your room, right? But what if a student's walking down the hall and you say, hey, excuse me, excuse me, uh, guy, where are you going? And what if he says, oh, I'm headed to the office, uh, and he pulls out this hall pass, and it has his teacher's name on it. That student is walking down the hall with confidence, because he's been sent, and he has the authority, the pass, that says you should be there doing this thing. And so in verse 20, that's what I see here from Christ, that believers, followers, disciples can go with confidence, and can serve him with confidence, and can minister in confidence, and can witness in confidence, even in difficult times, because we remember by whom we are sent. We're not confident because we're good or strong or spiritual, but we're confident because we go with the authority of Christ. We see it in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, when he tells us to go and make disciples. It says in verse 18 of that text, in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth, therefore go. We go and we follow his will in confidence. Let me give you the fifth one. I get this from verse 21. Look at verse 21. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. Christ went through a lot of trouble for us, didn't he? He was perfect. He didn't have to go through any of this. He's troubled in his spirit. Then it says, verily, verily, I say unto you, one of you shall betray me. My fifth point, we also mentioned this recently in another sermon, but a professing believer can be a false believer. A professing believer can be a false believer. Imagine that room when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, and they didn't know which one it was. Three years of walking together as a group, walking with Christ, and all that they did and saw, they didn't know who the betrayer was. Do you think if Simon Peter knew what Judas was going to do, he would have allowed Judas to stay in that group? 
I don't think so. I don't think any of them would. I think Judas would have been gone if they knew he was a betrayer. And yet he's there. None of them knew. And so I, I see here that Judas is a, not a, Judas is the poster child for a type of religion that says, I can go to church, be near the things of God, even serve God, because you know he's there, he's the treasurer basically. He's the poster child for the type of religion that says, I can do all these things near God and yet, and yet still reject Christ. And church, there are people like this in probably almost every church there is who come to Jesus in external religious activity but never truly turn to Jesus in faith. J.C. Ryle said very Bluntly, according to the men of the world, few are going to hell. But according to the Bible, few are going to heaven. So don't let this be your story. If you're listening to my voice, don't let this be your story. Your profession of Christ means nothing if you've never been justified by faith in Christ. Repent and believe. Well, verse 22, so... I told you they didn't know, and, and look, verse 22 says it. They look around, and they're like, who, who is it? Put yourself in their place. They had been following Jesus. They had heard and seen so much, and now Jesus has told them, my hour has come. They know that, you know, they don't know exactly what's going to happen, but they know something's about to happen, and I imagine their minds are just turning, like, what's going on? And I, I'm sure they're questioning things like, you know, is... Is our master truly going to leave us? Will, will we have to die with him? Will we have to suffer? And so they're thinking, I'm sure all these things, and then Jesus says, no, one of you will actually betray me. Let me ask you a question, church. Up until now, in the life of Christ and these disciples, had they ever heard Jesus tell a lie? Of course not, right? He couldn't, couldn't lie. And so when he says, one of you will betray me, I believe they knew he was telling the truth. And I'll give you another example. In Mark's gospel, Mark says one by one, they begin to ask, is it I? Is it I? And they're even like questioning their own selves, like, am I the one? Is he talking about me? So then in verse 23, as we continue to read here, before we get to our final point, but verse 23, he says, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved. Who's the disciple whom Jesus loved? John, the writer of this gospel. Do you think he was being arrogant by calling himself that? I'm the disciple Jesus loved. I don't think he was being arrogant. I think it was more, actually more humility there. He didn't throw his own name in there. He just referenced that Christ loved him, which I hope we can all say that, that we love Christ, he loves us. Let's continue to read there. So John's leaning there on Christ. Simon Peter, verse 24, beckons him. Simon's like, hey, John, ask him who it is. Ask him who the betrayer is. I need to know if it's me. Uh, ask him who it is. Verse 25, John leans back. Now in these days, by the way, you've seen the, you've seen the Last Supper portrait. We've all seen the picture many times. But more than likely, the way they were eating here was almost laying down, propped up. And so John would have been right there next to Christ, the way they would kind of be leaning over on one arm, eating with the other arm, and so John's right there close. And so John says, hey, Lord, who is it? Verse 26, 
And Jesus says to him, hey, the one I give the bread to when I've dipped it, he's the one. So then he dips it and hands it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Verse 27 tells us there that when he gave him the bread, Satan entered him. And Jesus said, go do what you're going to do quickly. Now, I'm not going to talk much about Satan here, but we've already seen earlier that Satan had prompted Judas, and now it's like a full-blown thing where Judas has completely rejected Christ and accepted the, the enemy. And that leads me to my sixth point. Do you see here how Jesus extends grace to his betrayer, even until the end. Judas Iscariot, three years prior, was called to follow Jesus, to hear all he would say, to see all he would do. In John 13, Jesus Christ knelt down, taking the form of a servant, and washed the feet of Judas Iscariot. A few verses later, what we're in today, he is having this meal, sharing this meal, which was an intimate thing with Judas Iscariot. And he even took a piece of bread and passed it to Judas, which in that culture was seen as like an honor. You'd only do that to a friend or someone close to you. It's an honor to have that bread passed to you. An act of friendship, some said. Jesus extended grace to his betrayer to the end. And Jesus handles betrayal with the utmost righteousness and grace, doesn't he? I mean, all the way to the cross, right? That's how he handled his suffering. And so, to the end, grace was extended by Jesus, and yet to the end, Judas rejected Christ. But I think there's a word here for anyone who might say, can God really do a work in my life? Can God really save me? Is there enough grace in God for me? You don't know all the things I've done. Can God truly save me? And I think the answer is, His grace is extended. Until you don't live anymore, until He calls us home, His grace is there. He's a never-ending fountain of grace for those who will believe. Now the last three verses. Even then, even though he had passed the bread to Judas, the, the other disciples didn't understand what was happening. And verse 29 tells us they thought maybe Jesus sent him out on an errand. So they still didn't know what was going on here. Maybe he was going out to get supplies. He is the guy with the money. Maybe he's going to buy some supplies. And then verse 30, Judas gets up and leaves, and it was night, which I think has some significance as well. So this is the story of Jesus calling out the one who will betray him. And I do want to give you, uh, of course, I gave you those six points. I want to give you an application here that I think is practical. Related to this, and I, I don't know who this might help. Maybe one person, maybe nobody. But I think it applies to me, so hopefully it will apply to somebody else. And that's this. How do we as Christians handle when someone betrays us? Have you ever been stabbed in the back, as we like to say, right? Or have you ever been hurt by someone or had your trust betrayed? Probably most of us have been on both sides of that at some point or another. Or maybe we've betrayed someone's trust or had our trust betrayed. And as I look at 
how Jesus could have responded here if he was like us, if he was sinful like us, how he could have responded, I think he could have allowed that betrayal to become hurt and allowed that hurt to become bitterness. Have you ever had bitterness in your life? We all probably have. And bitterness gets in there deep and it can, bitterness is ugly and it can make a person ugly. And I think bitterness is actually easy to see in someone else. It's not so easy to pinpoint in my own self. But I don't know about you, I can, I can tell a bitter person from a mile away. I mean, when they walk in a room, they're the kind of person that makes the room go from light to dark. <laughs> that's so negative and complainy. Is that a word, complainy? They, that's a bitter person, typically. They, someone said a bitter person can suck the life out of a room. <laughs> Sometimes I've been that person. Sometimes I've, I've definitely been around people like that. But how do we pinpoint bitterness in ourselves? Well, here's one way. Remember this three words. You might want to write this down. Bitterness remembers details. Bitterness remembers details. Bitterness in my life and in your life, if we have it in us, it rehearses the thing that someone did to us over and over and over and over. You remember 1 Corinthians 13, that love chapter where it says, love keeps no record of wrongs? Well, bitterness keeps a spreadsheet of wrongs. <laughs> bitterness likes to remember all those things that were done against us. But over in Ephesians 4.31, I'll just read it to you. In Ephesians 4.31, Paul wrote, You need to get rid of all bitterness, wrath, anger, slander, and malice. Paul says, if you have bitterness in you, you need to put that away. And in Hebrews 12.14 and 15, it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And so there's something to be said for us as believers, as a way of an application here to say, is there bitterness in us that we might need to repent of today? And there's two worldly options to handle bitterness. We'll go back one there. There's two worldly options to handle it. We can repress it, which I don't know about you, but in my experience, if you repress or stuff deep down inside you, your bitterness, you can actually become sick physically. I mean, it's not good for you to repress that kind of stuff. But it's also not good to go out and spread your bitterness around the world, right? And be that person that sucks the life out of a room. You don't want to be that person. That person's not fun to be around. That person's not a fun person to be in church with or at work with or at home with. So those are some worldly options that don't do the job. So let me give you a couple of biblical options if you have bitterness in you today. Number one, we need to recognize it. I want you to think about it. If you're going through something right now where someone has hurt you or something happened to you in the last few years, do you think, like I do sometimes, I don't want to hear this because you don't know what that person did to me, <laughs> right? You don't know what they did to me. I don't want to hear your preaching about this. That shows us we have not quite recognized and admitted our bitterness. Back to Ephesians 4. Not only do we need to recognize it, but in Ephesians 4, he says, get rid of bitterness. In verse 32, he says, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We need to recognize it, and we need to confess it. Bitterness focuses on self. Compassion focuses on others. As spirit-filled believers, are we capable 
of forgiving people who've wronged us. Are we? We have to be, right? It says, forgive them as God in Christ forgave you. And if God in Christ can forgive me for my infinitely damnable sin against Him, then as bad as it might seem, I need to get to that place where I can forgive someone else in my life. I was reading a story about a man who, he travels the country and speaks on bitterness and on happiness and how to, how to have a better life, that kind of stuff. And he's a Christian man, a professing Christian man. And he tells a story that one night he was in the uh, bedroom with his wife having a discussion and she said something that just set him off. And some of us can relate to this. And she gets mad, he says something back, and she storms out of the room. And she hasn't been gone five minutes, and he calms down, and he's like, you know what? I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I have anger right now. I have bitterness right now. And so knowing the things he knows as a teacher, he walked over to his bed and knelt down and prayed. And he asked God to forgive him of his bitterness and anger toward his wife. And he tells in the story that he prayed for a few minutes, and he stood up. And as soon as he stood up from praying, he thought to himself, yeah, but... Can you believe what she just said to me? And without even thinking, he was like, back down. Went back down to his knees and began to pray some more. And he prayed again. He got up a second time after five minutes of prayer, and he was still angry. And in his story, he says he knelt down. And the third time he knelt down, he stayed on his knees for 45 minutes. And he said, I did not get up until I was free from bitterness. We want everything fast, don't we? If you're experiencing a deep hurt where you need to forgive someone or have some bitterness put out of you, it may not happen with a two-minute prayer, right? There's scripture that says things like this, wait on the Lord. How, much how, how many times do we just rush into his presence and rush out? How many Sundays do we think, I just need to rush in here at 1030, rush out by 1120 or whatever? How, why are we rushing so much? When we get the opportunity to meet with God and pray to God, and uh, that says a lot about us if we're always in a rush to get in and out of His presence, especially out of His presence. We're responsible for how we handle our own bitterness, our own anger. And I saw this illustration this week of a hand holding a rope, and the hand was trying to hold on so tight that it was just getting all tore up by the rope. Then the next picture had the hand letting go, and the hand looked fine. And the quote was, sometimes holding on does more damage than letting go. Sometimes holding on does more damage than letting go. And so church, I, I hope this is, again, applicable. I think it is. Is there some forgiveness that you need to pray for about some bitterness or anger towards someone else? Do you need to pray from that God would give you just freedom from some of these things you might be feeling that are, you know are sinful. Um, I do know this. There is forgiveness and grace for us in Christ with any of these things if we confess them. Let me conclude. Jesus Christ was betrayed. Maybe, I would argue, the greatest betrayal of all time. Was there an ounce of bitterness in Him? Only righteousness. Jesus knew that everything happened for a reason. He knew his friends were there for his good, and he knew his enemies, whatever they had planned, 
God would turn that evil for good. We need that type of Romans 8.28 perspective. We serve a gracious God. May we never be in the, listed in the line of Judas Iscariot. May we never reject the one who gave himself for us. And next week, he's going to give us a new and powerful commandment. I think kind of coming off this kind of negative type message, a positive and powerful commandment in the next text. I hope you'll be here for that. Thanks for joining us for this sermon. We hope you enjoyed it. Join us next week as we continue going verse by verse into God's Word. Solo Scriptura, Soli Deo Gloria.